I love the eagle, farewell to thy mountain. With all their bright blossoms of purple and gold, no more shall I sit by their murmuring fountain. Nor from their bold heights the Atlantic behold. How glorious to watch the proud billows ascending in towers of white foam o'er the dark isle of Clare. Or even do eagles while precipice bending to see them far down shining lovely and fair. The Emigrants' Song of Farewell to Ackle, the Isle of the Eagle, sung by James E. Cain of Dugart. This is not, however, a programme of Ackle Farewells. Rather is it a programme of Ackle Introductions by various people, past and present. Artist Paul Henry, for instance. The desire to live in Ackle was a purely emotional one. I wanted to live there, not as a visitor, but to identify myself with its life and to see it every day in all its moods, in wind and rain, in storm, and in summer and in winter, and by painting it in all these conditions to find out, if I could, the driving force behind its attractiveness. I wanted to know the people, their intimate lives, the times of seed time and harvest. Only after I had gained such knowledge would I be able to paint the country which I had adopted. I wanted to study them. I wanted to study the lives of the people and their surroundings as closely and as single-mindedly as the French naturalist Fabre studied the insects of his devotion in the stony fields and vineyards of Provence. Geographically, Achill is an island, and it held all the islanders' susceptibilities to the outside world, although only a few hundred yards separated it from the mainland, and its current of life was entirely traditional, which separated it still further. There were many folk who had never seen a train. All these things proved attractive and satisfying to me, and the habits and ways of this remote community, surrounded by savage rocks and treacherous seas, provided me with all I required as a painter. But what attracted me above all these things was the wild beauty of the landscape, of the colour and variety of the cloud formations, one of the especial glories of the west of Ireland. That was an excerpt from Paul Henry's autobiography, An Irish Portrait, published in 1951. As I read it recently, I was reminded of the story of the Ackle Hat, an old forgotten custom, as explained to me by Padraig Shoya. The story, as I heard it, was that uh, prior to the building of the bridge, that on this side here, I would say on the Ireland side, um, there was a, a hat which was left there uh, on some kind of a post or other, and that anybody going to, it appears that at the time, what they were would have worn an ankle, the menfolk would be the cap. But um, to improve a person's look and add that, that little bit of uschlacht, uh, uh, the hat was called for. So if a man felt that way and that he looked better with the hat, 
he left his cap or an ankle or stuck it in his pocket or something and put on this hat, which he found after he crossed in the boat and wore it up to Westport and back again. Then he left it there when he was finished with it and put on his cap. It seems to me that the custom still flourishes in a reverse direction. In a sense, down through the years, visitors to Ackle have been leaving their hats at the Sound, that narrow, bridged stretch of tidal water between the mainland and the island. In many cases, indeed, the atmosphere of Ackle, its almost magical quality of tranquillity, so captivates the visitor that he finally dons the Ackle cap and leaves his own mainland hat at the Sound permanently. He accepts the Ackle way of life, Writer Noel Scanlon returned to Ireland after 17 years in the Middle East and settled in Ackle a year ago, where he wrote his recently published adventure story, Quinn. We were looking for a small house that would suit us, and finding ourselves in Westport, an auctioneer brought us across to see the island. It was a calm February day, and there was immediately something appealing about the aspect of Ackle. Everything was still and tranquil. The world seemed wide and open. The skies higher and wider than I'd seen them, other than in the desert. And like the desert, there was this tranquillity, this air of timelessness. A timelessness that derives, I think, as much from the way of life of the people as from the physical surrounds. Novelist Honor Tracy has lived in Ackle for the past eight years, and her most recently published novel, In the Quiet of the Evening, contains descriptive passages based on her experience of Ackle and its scenery. Her cottage stood hard by the beach shore, where the sound began to widen before flowing into the Atlantic. The little white cabins of the mainland were reflected in the water, wrong side up, the smoke from their chimneys curling downward, their walls trembling now and again as a puff of wind fretted the surface. The gulls were complacently taking their ease, borne slantways along by the inflowing tide. The grey seal lay on her rock in the sun, caressing her pup with a flipper, and the otters slid in and out of the sea or capered about on the shore in their tireless pursuit of enjoyment. And in 1831... Ackle is the most destitute spot in Ireland, and I wish to lift the standard of the cross among its inhabitants. That was the Reverend Edward Nangle, who by 1835 had established his missionary colony at Dugart. His activities in this field were the centre of continuous vituperative controversy and the project was viewed with disapproval and apprehension and indeed suspicion in many quarters, not all of which were Catholic. We consider every conscientious accession to the Protestant faith as a contribution in the aid of the well-being of the state and the prosperity of Ireland more especially. But such experiments as that at Ackle will be made in vain. We have shown that here it has been a complete failure. The principles upon which it has been conducted have not been in accordance with the divine precept of charity, nor has the clergyman under whose control the settlement is placed been an example of that gentle, peace-loving and persuasive zeal, that meek and unaffected grace which should distinguish a humble follower of the Lord and Master. One word more, and we dismiss the subject. It was impossible not to appreciate the magnanimity of the poor, miserable, utterly destitute and absolutely starving inhabitants of Ackle, who were, at the time of our visit, enduring privations at which humanity shudders. 
and to know that by walking a couple of miles and professing to change their religion, they would have been instantly supplied with food, clothes and lodging. Yet these hungry thousands, for it would be scarcely an exaggeration to say that nine-tenths of the population of this island were, in the month of July last, entirely without food, preferred patiently to endure their sufferings rather than submit to what they considered a degradation. Such fortitude we do believe to be without parallel in the history of any ignorant and unenlightened people since the creation of the world. Authors Mr. and Mrs. S. C. Hall in 1842 And in 1847, American Mrs. Azeneth Nicholson came to Ackle to inspect the missionary colony, and while there, she became friendly with local woman Molly Vesey. From what I was able to see for myself of the colony, I could not be so unjust as not to acknowledge heartily that much has been done and will be done to make a barren waste a fruitful field. The neat white cottages and the pleasant roads make a striking contrast with the hurdles about Molly Vesey's. But I do not speak sarcastically when I say that the manners of the people in the shop where I waited and in the parlour of Mr Nangle were not in so good keeping with Christian refinement as were those in the cabin of Molly. Pity that Bible Christianity should ever have a counterfeit. I had looked in the cabins of many of the converts in Dingle and Ackle, and though their feet were washed cleaner, their stools scoured whiter, and their hearths swept better than in many of the mountain cabins, yet their eightpence a day will never put shoes upon their feet, convert their stools into chairs, or give them any better broom than the mountain heath for sweeping their cabins. It will never give them the palatable, well-spread board around which their masters sit and which they have earned for them by their scantily paid toil. Apart, however, from anything else, Nangle could be said to have started tourism in Ackle. He did establish a hotel at Dugart and a printing press, and on the 5th of June, 1844, the following advertisement appeared in the Ackle Missionary Herald and Western Witness... Volume 7, number 79. We are happy to inform our friends that a well-appointed mail car has been established between this place, Dugort, and Newport. We are erecting a commodious hotel, and in the meantime visitors can be accommodated with a sitting room and a couple of beds and entertainment at the house of Mr. Patrick Hughes, late Sergeant Major in the 11th Regiment, who resides in this settlement. The travellers from Dublin should proceed to Newport, where they will be sure to receive every attention from Mr. Richard Bird, the proprietor of the O'Donnell Arms Hotel. Having spent the night at Newport, the traveller will proceed on his journey by the Ackle mail car, which starts at a quarter past eleven o'clock in the morning, reaching Ackle Sound at a quarter past one p.m., and this settlement at four p.m. Affairs. Newport Mayo to Tiranor, one shilling. To Mulrani, two shillings and sixpence. To Sound of Ackle, two shillings and sixpence. To Dugart Post Office, three shillings and sixpence. Children under ten years of age to pay half fare. An infant under two, free, provided it is carried on the lap. Parcels under two pounds weight sent per mail will be charged three pence each. 
extra weight, which will only be carried when the car can afford accommodation, must be paid for at the rate of one halfpenny per pound before the car starts. The fare must in all cases be paid before a seat can be engaged. No dogs can be admitted to the car. No greatcoats, umbrellas, cloaks or other loose articles will be taken care of. There was at that time no bridge at the Sound. There was a ferry boat which brought both passengers and coach from the mainland to the island, a distance of less than a quarter of a mile at low water. And the visitors, or tourists as we now call them, did come. Upper class visitors who wrote about the colony and about Ackle and who made sure that they would be heard. American Mrs. Nicholson, Londoner Edward Newman, who wrote, The natives of Ackle are charged with being thieves and murderers, and if I were to place full reliance on all I heard at the settlement, they would appear to be so. Mr. Long, however, with everything constantly exposed, walls and hedges being here unknown, and living amongst a population from whom he has no power at all to defend himself, has never lost even a potato. I allude not to this subject politically, but bearing in mind solely the natural history of the island and its capability of improvement. I pronounce without hesitation that if goodness of soil, lowness of rent, cheapness of labour and safety of property be recommendations, then that no spot I have ever seen is more likely to reward the emigrant than the island of Ackle. And a friend of Nangles, the Reverend Caesar Otway, who, it must be admitted, regarded Ackle with a jaundiced eye, nodded. It is curious to see how this Western people assimilated the colour of their clothing to the broom and dingy red of the bogs amidst which they lived. All wild animals in this way have the colour of the glebe on which they lie. The grouse and the connacht woman are attired in nearly the same colours. The dress of the people was as primitive as their husbandry. Very few of the men wore hats. Their long glibs were their protection from the weather. The women, besides the russet brown woolsey gown and the madder red short petticoat, wore the yellow kerchief tied down close to their heads. And the halls, of course, who apart from their inspection of the colony, wrote about Ackle itself and described the attractions that would bring an artist of Paul Henry's stature to the island almost 100 years later. Perhaps no country of the world is so rich in materials for the painter. Nowhere can he find more admirable subjects for his pencil, whether he studies the immense varieties of nature or human character as infinitely varied. The artist by whom this district has not been visited can indeed have no idea of its surpassing grandeur and sublimity. Go where he will, he finds a picture. The lines of the mountains covered with heather, the rocks of innumerable shapes, the passes, rugged but grand to a degree, the finest rivers, always rapid, salmon leaps upon almost every one of them, the broadest and richest lakes, full of small islands, and at times clothed with luxuriant foliage along their sides. In fact, nature nowhere presents such abundant and such extraordinary stores of wealth to the painter, and even now it has been very little resorted to. Add to this that every peasant the artist will encounter furnishes a striking and picturesque sketch, and as they are usually met in groups, scarcely one will be without this valuable accessory to the landscape. 
Paul Henry did indeed find the characters in Ackle many and varied, but he uh, also ran up against an unexpected difficulty. At first I knew nothing of the West of Ireland ways, but it was not long before I realised that something was wrong. After a few weeks I noticed that a woman who saw me coming through the village called her children, hurried them into the cottage and slammed the door behind them. Even then, although it looked rather queer, I did not realise what it meant. There may have been other incidents which in my innocence I had failed to notice or understand. A few days later the same thing happened, but with another woman, only this time she called, Come in, come in, here comes the sketcher. Even then I did not realise the reason for this, and it was left to my good friend Nurse Comerford to explain to me that my making drawings of the people was bitterly resented. Then I saw where I stood. I had come up against one of the oldest superstitions of the world, the belief that something of the sitter entered into the drawing. The dislike, or rather the fear of being made the subject of a drawing, was more pronounced among the older women, and I could never be quite sure that it was altogether superstition. I think it was partly the natural shyness of extremely modest people. At times their modesty could be embarrassing. Some ladies who were staying on the island hired ponies and rode astride. The women they met on the road would draw their shawls across their faces and avert their heads until the indecent sight had passed. I remember helping at a concert in the local school. A lady had come from a distance to sing. When she was asked to do her stuff, she threw back her cloak, and to the horror of everyone she was seen to be in full evening dress with a backless frock as she walked to the platform. Every woman in the room averted her face over which she drew her shawl and refused to look at the singer. Not so the cluster of small boys who were crowding round the curtainless windows. Be Jesus, was the cry. There's a naked woman inside. The windows were stormed by an excited crowd, scandalised but eager to get a free view of the great event of the evening, and I had to leave the hall to quell a minor riot. And there you heard Paul Henry's own account of some of his experiences in Ackle around about the year 1912. Back again to the year 1842, when the Halls noted some interesting aspects of Ackle tradition and genealogy. We turn to a pleasanter topic, the singularities and natural beauties of this island of Ackle. The people have many primitive customs. A few days before our arrival, an occurrence took place which we understood is by no means uncommon, a race for a wife. A young man, a carpenter named Lynchigan, applied to the father of a girl named Corrigan for his daughter in marriage. A rival, called Lavelle, asked for her also, on the plea that, as he was richer, he wouldn't ask so much with her. Whereupon the faction of the Swains were about to join issue and fight, when a peacemaker suggested that the boys should run for her. The race was run accordingly, a distance of some miles up and down a mountain. Lynchigan won and wedded the maiden. The islanders consist almost entirely of four principal families, and we were informed that they could be easily distinguished the one from the other. Indeed, of this fact we had positive proof. They have in many respects separate habits and customs, and seldom intermarry apart from their clans. 
The Levels are of French extraction, the descendants of French fishermen who in former times used to fish off the island of Boffin. They are, for the most part, light, smart and handsome men. The Schofields are of English descent and proud of it. The Caulfields are dark, curly-headed men and retain tokens of Creole blood. The Morans are of Danish descent, heavy and dull men with red hair and whiskers. The O'Malleys, Gorgons and Mons are of the Aboriginal Irish and they, added our informant, a very intelligent person, who had long lived among them, are cleverer than the others, their countenances being animated and full of expression. The several classes were repeatedly pointed out to us, and in no instance was there a mistake as to the name or family of the person to whom reference was made. Honour Tracy, 1973. A very closed community. But, uh, of course, all islands have that quality a little bit, haven't they? Mm-hmm. It is, for all there's the bridge across, it is very much an island, conscious of being an island, conscious of not being a part of the mainland. That the people on the mainland are something different, you know. Mm-hmm. Ah, he's a foreigner, you know. Uh, as for anyone coming from Castle Bar, it's an exotic. Eh? Well, for <clears throat> one thing, there's a great deal of relationship here. People are tremendously interconnected, you know, and the family is enormously important. They tend to marry on the island too, you see. So you're constantly finding that. Someone you've known a long time is in fact a cousin of somebody else you've known a long time and you didn't realise it. Mm-hmm. And there are these links between the people here. Mm-hmm. I think that's one, one reason for this closed feeling, perhaps. This was also something noted by Paul Henry. Johnny and I drifted into a talk, and so attracted was I by him and his talk as we sat by the roadside that I think we must have chatted for about an hour. Johnny was a McNamara, one of a very numerous clan, and a family which carried very great weight in this part of Ackill. Johnny McNamara was the son of John McNamara, the son of Tom McNamara, the son of Owen McNamara, Johnny Tom Owen McNamara, known to the whole of the countryside as Johnny Tom Owen. Ex-banker and author North Scanlon has travelled widely in the Middle East and India, and, strangely enough, today finds points of similarity between Ackle people, himself, and uh, people to points east of the Irish meridian. The island people themselves are open and friendly. Like myself, many of them have lived abroad, many of them have their children abroad, many of them have travelled. It seems to me that this has given a certain breadth of outlook, the remoteness to appeal to us. We already had experience of living in remote areas in the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, at the time I was writing a book, an adventure story called Quinn, set in Arabia. And oddly enough, despite the divergence of climate, I found points of similarity between Arabia and Akil. In Arabia, I was always attracted to the traditional life of the Bedou Arab, which has gone on more or less unchanged for thousands of years. And in Akil, this is closely paralleled by the life the people here live, in that it is, it is also traditional and also, like the Bedou, largely unchanged for so many years. Akelman Padig Shoyan does not accept that the traditions of Akel have remained unchanged over the years. Akel people were forced by circumstances to 
to immigrate and they immigrated at a very early age. And they went to Scotland and that. And um, you had a situation then where the younger people and the very young were those who were regarded as having, as, as knowing something. This due to the fact of their having traveled abroad, the older crowd, except those who were engaged possibly in, in fishing or who were engaged in carrying goods by boat from Westport to Belmullet, which they did, the older people hadn't gone out much at all. They, um, they remained on at home, they were engaged in they reared cattle and they sold cattle or sheep or pigs and their world was very circumscribed and small. And um, the people who were in a position to speak about outside places were really the very young, from the age of 12 up to possibly 18. That may be, and Noel Scanlon's comparisons may appear to be fanciful. Another look, however, at the past may prove them otherwise. In 1842, according to the Halls, The habitations of the islanders are very singular. Their houses are heaps of rude stones moulded by the tide, procured from the beach, uncemented. They are rounded at the gables and roofed with fern, heath and shingles, fastened on by straw bands. In the village of Douar, consisting of about 40 cabins, there is not a single chimney. Some of the wealthier graziers, however, have an odd custom of residing in such houses, or in houses of a still more simple construction, only during the summer months, when the season for fishing is on, and their cattle are brought down towards the coast to feed on the young herbage. These hovels they call bully houses. Around about the same time, the... Uh very prejudiced Caesar Otway reported. These houses were very like a Hottentot's kraal. An actual village consisted of a congress of hovels thrown indiscriminately together, as if they fell in a shower from the sky, and this construction was as follows. A dry stone wall was built of a form like an obtuse oval, for they had not arrived at the art of making a square coin or erecting a gable end. Outside this wall, and about at a foot distance, another loose wall was run up, and the space between the two filled with sea sand. Then this was roofed, generally with timber washed on shore from wrecks, and covered with heath, which covering did not reach over the outside wall and form an eave, but rested on the middle, between the walls, and the moisture from the above passed as it should through the intervening sand. And to confuse the issue further, in 1838, London publisher Edward Newman wrote, Ackle is more like a foreign land than any I have visited. The natives reside in huts which a good deal resemble those of the Eskimo Indians. They are without chimneys or windows. Eskimos, Hottentots, Bedouins. What made Ackle people appear to be all things to all people? Uh, is it the isolation that Noel Scanlon mentions? Or is it the fact that Ackle is still an inward-looking, self-preservatory island community, as Honor Tracy mentions? 
Or, in fact, does the actual natural environment of Eichel impose a type of universal character, a recognisable basic humanity on the Eichel Islander? Paddy Shoya. Well, I wouldn't attribute uh, the gentility that you speak about to um, any influence of the place. Rather, would I attribute that to the fact that people found themselves living in conditions where possibly they were never meant to, to live, but they just had to be the uh, had to make the best of it. And it was a case of their having to cooperate with each other in order to live. Just communities had to cooperate and help each other, and. Um, the best was brought out in everybody by the fact that he had to come to the assistance of somebody else and somebody else had to come to his assistance at some time or other, whether it was putting in the hay or drawing home the turf or launching a boat or whatever it might be. Just people couldn't operate on their own. They had to have the help of the neighbour. And you had that great Christian charity, uh, which is, I think, the hallmark of great uh, communities. Uh, but I would say that um, due to in outside influences, we tend today to to think that we can uh, manage on our own. That uh, feeling is beginning to creep in. I think it's, it's a bad one. I personally, I don't want to see it. I think the day when a person feels that uh, he must lean on his neighbour for something, it's good for the person and it's good for the neighbour because all the, the virtues that... Uh, go into the make-up of a real Christian community or called upon and are practised in that particular. As I mentioned before, there was no bridge between the island and the mainland. Since 1888, Ackle, strictly speaking, has not been an island. In that year, Fermanaman John Porter left his hat at the Sound in a very definite way indeed. It was, in fact, an iron one, swivelled. John Porter's name may be largely forgotten on the island now, but in that year of 1888, he was solely instrumental in having the sound bridged by an iron swivel bridge. Not alone that, but he contributed, out of his own pocket, a share of the building expenses to the tune of 25%, a very definite and very welcome mainland hat indeed. Eighty-seven years old Nellie Scanlon of Acklesound recalls the Norbridge days and tells a knackle story associated with those days. There was no road, my dear. There was no bridge. It was a big, big float that was in it and I was bring the Catholic hat on that. This is an island, you know. Mm. Going down to bridge to, to the other path. Long, long ago, in the olden times, there was a, a, a woman and her two sons. And the two sons were named Billy and Jack. And they lived on the island, and you got about ten miles from here. So they lived there, and father lived on, going out to Westport and buying stuff, and selling it at double the price because of the, the stuff was scarce. Mm -hmm. It was all right then, the mother got sick, and she was from out the country. And she wanted, told the two sons when she died, to bring her home and bury her in her own hometown. She died then, and I buried her down on Slimbore. And in a few months after, every night, every 
train there wake up at three of the mother standing at the foot of the bed and she'd be begging them to bring her home. She didn't give them either peace until they had to take her home. There was no motor car that time nor anything. Only they got a horse and car from a man in the valley, down the island too. And he gave the loan of the horse and car to them to take the woman out to Kutchumachal, wherever she was from. And then, this is the road that took her in. The road you come in, in here. Down there to that sea. And across that strand there. See that strand? Yeah. They had to wait there then for two or three hours and tie the horse and cart down on the shore to a stone and wait for the tide to go out. So they went into one of the old neighbor's houses down there and they gave them a, a cup of tea waiting for the strand to take the, the carts across. So there was a woman going to the fair and she had two pigs. That very morning, it was a fair day, market day out here. Yeah. And she let out her pigs out for her walk around when she went down the shore. She seen the coffin on the cat and then she followed faint down the middle of the shore. She fainted there and the husband was waiting for her to come in and she didn't come in and he found her. He, he found her down there in the shore and he lifted her and took her in. So anyways, Billy and Jack took the mother across and out the mountain and there was an old road but outside that mountain, you go to 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 Marani. You, you yeah. go to the Marani road. There was no there was no bridge. There was no bridge there. The time, yeah. But yeah. a big float that 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 go across and that's in the olden olden time. But anyways, they took some of the home and they buried her. And that very day. There wasn't a house left in Akil, but the roof was nearly taken off them. It so. wasn't such a storm that the, 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 every house was nearly wrecked. They said it wasn't right to lift the corpse out to the grave and take it away out of the country. So that's my story for you know, that's what Billy and Jack and the mother and It's just true, it's no lie. And there was a song, there was a woman in this village, which I haven't very well, I don't want to go saying it. She had an Irish song, she made a song, there was a song made about. And I'm sure that, like all the other Ackle stories I've been told, that Nellie Scanlon's story is indeed quite true. Nellie herself is a much-travelled woman, as she explained to me when I asked her if she had ever been off the island. I was, and I was seven times in Scotland. And we would go on the boat. Mm. We'd go up to Westport, and we'd get across to Glasgow for five shillings. And we'd be two nights on the boat, on that old boat, and cattle and everything underneath, and just lying there on, on, on the old sofa there. And if it was a rough night, I'd be so sick. I never was sick anywhere. I could travel. Anywhere. And it was four times over in London, over in an airplane and back. I was in London and I was in, I was in Edinburgh and I was in Glasgow and I was in, 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 in Air and I was in Throne and I was in, in, in Linnisco, the mother towns in Scotland. And I was, uh, I lived for about three months in Loch Lomond. 
put on the potato was we had a man in the gap of the, which we were well treated. We had a nice house. And we were standing something and had plenty of fun as well. The much-travelled Ackle woman and the much-travelled Ackle man have been referred to already by Noel Scanlon. Honour Tracy mentioned to me that because of this travelling, Ackle people are today possibly more broad-minded than people in the rest of the country. You are, for instance, more likely to see the newest fashion styles being worn in Ackle sooner than in the rest of the country. According to Paulig Shoya, however, old Ackle traditions took a bit of a beating as a result of this travelling. The tradition of the island, as we know, took an awful hammering due to the fact of the young having to go. And if anything, a kind of a new tradition came in without possibly our realising it. Uh, people, the youngsters who went to, to Scotland came into contact an awful lot with people from Donegal. And... Um, the music and the dances uh, that you would have in Ackill, we'll say, 50 years ago, were an awful lot of them, uh, possibly more Scotch than Irish. It would be wrong to say, I suppose, that they weren't Irish, and as much as if you could go back far enough, you would find that they were really Irish. But they were kind of imported if you like, uh, into Ackill through people going to Scotland and um, the, the, um, the merging of the, the two communities, the Donegal community and uh, the Ackill community in Scotland had an awful lot in common. There was a language bond. And then they found themselves in a place where possibly four or five hundred or six hundred years before that they wouldn't be out of place at all inasmuch as you had remaining in Scotland uh, an awful lot of the, the, the old Irish culture. And uh, the kind of, they imbibed that, they took that up. It was a natural thing that they would because it was something very close to themselves. And while they m might have been in a foreign land in some respects, from the cultural aspect, they weren't really in a strange land at all. The, the, the Scottish influence uh, can be seen and uh, you could notice it very much when I think back to tell you the dances they had, the particular dances they had, a lot of them were, were Scottish dances. In 1894, H. Baylor Hartland from Cork visited Ackle and had this to say as a result of his visit. The air on the island as we drive along towards Dugort is quite warm. One cannot but feel amazed at the thought that for years, all through this civilising reign of Queen Victoria, there was no bridge over the Sound. Shame on the past members of the Parliament for Mayo. Shame, I say, double shame on the government. For shame, you British House of Commons. For here you have allowed from five to seven thousand inhabitants for years in a state of nature, who can blame them for want of tact in the cultivation of crops? Even if there was never a railway to the Sound, surely there should have been a bridge, and this years since. And he went on to say, Let me repeat again, if Ackle Island was on the coast of England, it would have a royal residence, would have railways, houses for millionaires in scores, in fact, 
be possessed of every luxury and be self-supporting and wealthy. But it is at the wrong side of Ireland. These particular sentiments would appear to be relevant also today. Ackle would still appear to be at the wrong side of Ireland. Even touristically, it is underdeveloped. All in all, there are slightly less than 200 registered bedrooms on the island, and when you consider that acre for acre, the island of Ackle has more tourist potential than any other equivalent area of its size in Ireland, this is rather surprising. One wonders if it is the fact that Ackle Islanders themselves are afraid of development. Well, it needs development, but uh, it, 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 the people's lives uh, need looking after, definitely, but I, I, I personally would shudder and, 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 and run away from any type of development which would interfere with, um, with the natural beauty that we have. Padraig Shoya, who went on to say that the islanders are in fact working towards adding further dimensions to their way of life. Oh, indeed there is. The, the local uh, cooperative are negotiating um, some type of industry with, with Gael Tara Ern and, and bodies charged with uh, the, the development of the place and uh, we hope in the near future to have uh, possibly two or three factories been set up but um, when they do, if they do come, and I believe they will, I'm confident that they will, they certainly will not be based in any place that might interfere with what I spoke about a minute ago. Ackle Island. It lies immediately north of the entrance to Clue Bay. It's about 15 miles long, and at its greatest width, about 12 miles wide. It has an area of about 36,000 acres, which makes it the largest island in Ireland. There are three towering mountains, Schliavmoor at 2,204 feet, Crochon at 2,192 feet, and the lesser but equally impressive Minon at 1,530 feet. The rest of the island's surface is almost totally covered with heather and bog. Strictly speaking, Ackle is no longer an island, since it is linked to the mainland by a bridge at Ackle Sound, or the Sound, as it's known locally. Those are the facts about Ackle. But there is something else, something intangible, something that all those who contributed to this programme tonight have tried to define. Timelessness, the people, tradition, gentility, scenic beauty, who can define it? Maybe Paul Henry found the answer. For a long time I had known that Michael Mangan was anxious to go into the cliffs of Crohorn, which he had never seen except from a distance. He was anxious to see these cliffs because he had a theory that here was High Brazil, the islands of the blessed. It was a long time before I was able to take him there, but at last the day came and Michael and I started off. It was a brilliant morning, with the sparkling clear air that you get on a spring day, and we were both looking forward to this walk very much. It was going to be a long walk, so we started early. We left Duocha behind us and mounted the long hill that led to Corrymore. As we reached higher ground, 
the whole landscape began to unfold itself before us. At our feet lay the cliffs of Minon, on our right the lovely lines of Clare Island, and behind it a range of islands stretching from Clue Bay past the Twelve Pins and melting into a blue haze over the far distant mountains of Connemara. We spent a long time on the walk, because Michael wanted to point out all the places of interest and to give me the Irish place names and their English equivalents, and we did not hurry. As we climbed higher and looked out beyond Inish Cay, we could see Sligo Bay, and when I pointed out Ben Bulban, we began to speak of W.B. Yeats, whose home had been in Sligo. Michael got quite inarticulate with excitement. He was standing on the shores of the land of eternal youth. <laughs> 